can be found on page 1774 of the Pew Bible. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the world should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everybody. And I hope you're ready to get down to it, because we're going to get down to it. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this series called For Freedom out of Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6, where um, it starts with the first line, it was for freedom that Christ set you free, no longer to be under the yoke of slavery. That is, that the entire Christian understanding of what it means to be transformed by Christ, to be saved, to be born anew, all those—the whole gospel can be summarized in one way as a freedom, an emancipation— and a freedom that we're supposed to, to know, to receive, and then to stand in. And that in, in a certain way, the Christian life is to understand that freedom and to stand in that freedom. Okay? Now, the two slaveries that Paul says that we're no longer supposed to be under is one is the law, and the other is what he calls the flesh. Right? The law is this set of ideas by which we believe if we live up to them, we will be approved of. Now, there could be a secular version of that salvation. Other people will approve of us. There could be a divine version that, say that God will bless us and save us and whatever. But there is some set of ideas that if I live up to them, I'll be saved. And what, what the Apostle Paul says is that that's, that's never going to work, even if the law you use is actually God's law. And it's perfect. If you are under that law, and that's what your faith is in, that's what you're trying to live up to, that law will crush you. It will turn out to be a slavery the commands of that law will ultimately come out in your heart and lead you and give you all kinds of ideas for how to sin against it, and it will ultimately destroy you. It'll be a slavery. And inside of us is, um, is a kind of depravity, a brokenness, a, a, a sickness of sin. Um, people have referred to it with sin, sinful nature or sinful condition. The word that Paul uses is a Greek word that just means flesh, and it, it doesn't mean body. It means, it means that there is a rootedness inside. There's a selfishness a God-denying idolatry, a self-orientedness inside of us that is in our thinking, our emotions, our will, and instinctually and bodily in our strengths. 
that longs to stomp its feet and declare itself the ruler of our lives, that our lives are for ourselves. And that thing that the apostle calls the flesh is also a slavery. It enslaves us to an addiction to the self. It makes narcissists out of us, and it leads us to all kinds of destruction, not just to ourselves, but it makes us an enormous trial to everybody around us. And those two slaveries, Jesus has come to free us from. That in his life, death, and resurrection, in his teaching, and in his self-revelation, he has given us a new thing to live toward rather than a law to live up to. As Christians, we see the image and the picture of Jesus, true humanity embodied. We believe and trust in him, and we live towards him. And in living towards him, we can fulfill the law without being under the law. And when we come to Jesus, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is a new guide that is leading us away from the will of the flesh towards the will of the Spirit, which is in line with the humanity God created us to have. So that as the cancer of the flesh dies, as we have to put it to death, the image of God, the human being we were meant to be, the real us, comes forth through the leading of the Spirit so that we can become like Christ and we can walk in the Spirit. It is out of, it's out of those two slaveries, Paul says we've been called in Christ, it's out of those two slaveries Christ has come to set us free. And it means that we have to trust in Christ to save us, and then we have to receive the Spirit that he's given us, the Holy Spirit, and walk with God, the Holy Spirit. Last week, I said there's basically six ways in the second half of chapter five that we're told to walk with the Spirit. One is to express faith through love, right? One is to long for the real righteousness of Christ to be built into our character that is virtue, right? Responding to the Spirit's desires, it says in, in chapter five that, you know, you have your will that is wrapped up in the flesh, but there's another will now inside of you, the Holy Spirit. The will of your flesh is really loud, and it stomps its feet, and it yells about what we want, but there's another voice, the voice of the Spirit, that's clear, and it says, we need to do this, actually, right? And then the Spirit teaches us through Christ and through the gospel and through the Bible. So then there's things that we know, but the flesh doesn't want to know those things, and we want to deceive ourselves that we don't know those things, and we need to know that we know those things. We need to admit we know what we know about what godliness looks like and about what faith looks like and about what the gospel means. And that should lead us to a certain kind of internal spiritual brutality, the Bible, the Bible says in chapter 5 in Galatians that anybody who belongs to Christ has crucified the flesh. That is, there's a certain kind of spiritual brutality in us that has to kill that thing and has to engage in that every day. It is actually the spiritual brutality inside of us to kill sin that leads to the gentleness and kindness that is produced by love. Most people don't want to hear that. And lastly, we need to, to walk with the Spirit, not just to generally walk with the Spirit, but to keep in step with the Spirit every minute of every day. And the more we keep in step with the Spirit, the less opportunity the flesh has to overtake us. Okay? Now, of those six things, five of them basically happen inside of us. It's very hard for people to see them. And because they're sort of spiritual, emotional, psychological things that happen inside of us, they're also areas where it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves that we're really longing for the actual righteousness of Christ, that we're really responding to the Spirit's desires rather than the desires of our flesh, that we're really admitting we know what we know, and that we are really putting to death the flesh, not just saying no a couple of times to a few things that we were tempted to do that we sort of shouldn't, and that we're really, not just generally sometimes walking with the Spirit, but really moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, keeping in step with the Spirit. The one thing that your neighbor can look at you and be like, you don't do that. 
is the first one. Whether or not faith works itself out in love in a way that is visible and concrete and real, and therefore is also the place where Jesus can come and the Spirit can come and show us most easily how hypocritical we are. Does that make sense? One of the reasons, um, so if we look at this passage, if we have the freedom of faith in Christ, and we have faith in Christ, what that always is going to then produce is virtue and love. And I have to say virtue because love is one of those words that we want to put anything we want in there, right? Love can mean anything when it means nothing. And in the Bible, love is circumscribed by the character of Jesus. And so the the person of Jesus controls what is loving. And what the Bible teaches, God's self-revelation controls what is loving. And the commitment of the will and action to the true good of another person is virtue. And that is what is formed in us. And when we live that out, that is what the Bible calls love. And you can see that there. You can see it in verses 13 and 15. We were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, in this verse, he doesn't just say, love each other, right? Before, where he's explaining the gospel, he says, this is how it works out. Faith works out through love. Faith expressing itself through love. But here he gets a little more concrete, and to our horror, you're going to find that in a few verses, he's going to get even more concrete. You can't really call it love unless it is serving one another humbly. Unless what you call love meets that characteristic, we're functioning a little bit in self-deception, right? Now, what that means is that if we summarize the meaning of the first 10 chapters, 10 verses of Galatians 6, it would be something like this. Spiritual virtue demands humble, self-sacrificial love. Okay, spiritual virtue demands humble, self-sacrificial love. Now, what's your first response to that? Is it deeply moving? Does that speak to you? Does it speak to you in a really deep place? It doesn't, right? Your response to that is no freaking doubt, right? That's your response. Isn't that your response? Your response is like, yeah, that's not—it's clear, but gosh, right? And you see, that's the problem with that is because it's actually really obvious, right? And you can say that, and you can say that to people— you could, you could say to an atheist friend, right? You could be like, you could just take the word spiritual out of that one, right? And say, um, you know, virtue means humbly, self-sacrificially loving other people. And an atheist would say, yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to be a good person, if you're going to be loving, you got to help other people and serve them. And yeah, you shouldn't be ar- an arrogant idiot. And sometimes that's going to cost you stuff you want to do to help other people. Of course that's right. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that, Right? Um, the biggest problem in the world, though, is, is that we all think we're good people, and then we don't do good people. We don't, like, we, we don't do being a good person. We believe we're a good person, right? And so, the pro- so Galatians 6, 1 through 10, instructs us in some of the concrete things of love, but what it also does is it recognizes that we have to be attacked because we are so profoundly good at agreeing with the flesh in our own self-deception that if God doesn't come at us with some incredibly concrete, um, like, BS calls, then we are just never going to really reckon with the depth of the flesh's control over us, how worldly we really are, how deeply sinful we choose to be, and how we don't avail ourselves to the power of the Spirit and the truth of Christ to be free and to walk in the Spirit. Some of that deception is other people deceiving us, and a good bit of that deception is that we deceive ourselves even to the point that we believe that God can be mocked 
and how we believe in him. And if you look at these verses carefully as we lead it in chapter 6, Paul is really clear about the opposition. Like, we talked last week about how he says, one, we, we walk in the Spirit. That is, that since we live by the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit, right? But one of the things that we don't spend time talking about is the negative side of these verses. So what he says right after that is, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another, right? Because that would be, like it said in verse 13 to 15, indulging the flesh, Right? We're either going to live by the Spirit every second of every day. Listen, your whole Christian life can be summarized this way, okay? If you believe in Jesus, every second of every day, you are either sowing that is planting into the Spirit or the flesh. Every choice, every moment, everything, every word, every thought, everything, we are either walking in the Spirit or we are indulging the flesh. And if we're indulging the flesh, instead of producing self-sacrificial love that is staying in step with the Spirit— that is deeply humble, we're going to get the opposite. We're going to get, we're going to get a conceited heart that leads towards us envying and provoking each other. Okay, so we'll do three demands of humble love and then three quick applications. And by quick, I don't mean quick. Um, So three demands of humble love that reveals the work of the flesh. So these are, so if you understand love as love, there are three things in this passage that are just demanded by love. It's in our faces. And it, and when we deal with those, it actually reveals how strong the work of the flesh is in us and how much we have to prepare ourselves for the spiritual brutality it's going to take and the constancy of walking in the Spirit that's going to take for us to really put the flesh to death and to walk in the Spirit and to experience the righteousness of Christ. The first is the first verse, which is that we have to be humble in restoring spiritual failures. Now, the verse is this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. Now, um, I have always interpreted this verse this way until this week. When you're a Christian and you're in the church, of course, all these verses assume you're part of a local church of real Christians and you're trying to be family, brothers and sisters with each other. Now, if you're a Christian and you're around other people, other people hide sin just like you do, right? And so every once in a while what's going to happen is you're going to find out. You're going to catch them in a sin. And when you catch them in a sin, you've kind of got them by the spiritual throat. And so Paul's saying, now listen, you need to restore them gently, right? Because that's what Jesus would want. But when you do that work of restoring them, be careful, because in doing that work of restoration, you're taking on personal risk, and like you could be tempted. So an example of this would be like, you know, you find out your buddy has a porn habit, and you're like, well, let me help you. And so he puts some like software on his computer, and then you get the email of like all the stuff he's looked at. Well, you just kind of walked into something, didn't you? Because now how do you police those URLs that you're not sure about? Like what? Right? And your buddy's failing all the time, and you're like, dude, he— He's failing all the time. Jesus loves him. Shoot, I can look at some naked things, right? Like, it's very—or like you counsel, like you're—you're—you're—there's another married couple in your small group, and they're like, look, you know, my wife cheated on me, and I don't know what to do about this, and we're trying to figure this out, blah, 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 right? And you're like, well, and so you're sitting there, and you're talking to them, and like, if you're the dude in that situation, you realize you're talking to a woman that is emotionally available on some level and is easily manipulated. You can't help but know that. Whenever you enter into trying to help somebody get out of a sin, you're, you're, you're moving in closer proximity to certain things, which can ensnare you, right? That's actually not what the verse means. It's, that's true, not what the verse means. That's actually the self-righteous, conceited, and provoking way to interpret those two verses. The, the word, the, the Greek word translated caught in, 
is ambiguous, just like the English. So, right, caught in, it depends on who's the subject and who's the object, right? If I catch you in a sin, right, you're—I caught you in the sin, right? But you can be caught in a sin, right? And so the, the word can mean um, found somebody out. It can also mean pers- a person who is overtaken and ensnared. Now think about that in relationship to the verse right in front of it. Stay in step with this walk with the Spirit, right? Which means keeping in step with the Spirit. What happens when you don't keep in step with the Spirit? What happens when you're running a race and you're keeping in step with somebody and they're pacing you and you get out of pace with them? What happens? Right? You start to fall behind. And what happens? Other things can overtake you. So you see the idea here? You're supposed to be keeping in step with the Spirit. One of your brothers and sisters didn't keep in step with the Spirit. And as he didn't keep in step with the Spirit, he got overtaken. He got caught into a sin. That is, in his infirmity and in his willfulness in the flesh, he got ensnared. He got entangled. He got stuck. And you should restore him gently. And then it says, but be careful— or you too also be tempted, or literally, look to yourself lest you be tempted. Meaning this. The difference between you and your neighbor is not that you're great and they're idiots. The difference is that they got tempted and you didn't even get tempted. (laughs) And it's, it's very likely that if that same temptation came to you, you'd do exactly the same thing as they did. Because you're much more like them than you are different. We're all incredibly frail, incredibly willful, incredibly willing to go along with the flesh and with sin and with death and with hell, if it just gratifies and indulges us for a moment. And that's what we are like as people. And so if, in fact, what matters is faith working itself through love, and if what that means is invert spiritual virtue, serving your neighbor in humble love, what that means is, is you don't restore them gently as a lifeguard dives into the water and swims over to them and throws them on your back and swim out, but be careful you don't drown when you heroically save your idiotic brother and sister. That's really not what it's saying. What it's saying is, when you see people get overtaken by sin, you should go and restore them recognizing how weak how sinful, how broken, how willful, how flesh-addicted you are, recognizing that if you were even touched by the same temptation they were, it's very likely you do the exact same thing. And out of humility, you should go and serve them as sacrificially as possible in order to bring them back to Christ so that you can get, you can get in step with the Spirit again. That's different. You're still restoring somebody, but now it's lacking two things. The conceit that you're the good guy— and the provoking of that other person that happens when you come to them as the good guy. Jonathan Edwards had this great, um, this great resolution that he wrote when he was 19 years old. He said, whenever anybody sins, I will think of nothing but my own blackness, my own sin, that everything they have done, I have done, and that in every bit of their own horror at their own sin, I would see it in my own, and I, I would never imagine that anybody is capable of something that I'm not capable of, sinfully speaking. That is, that when other people fail, we should see it as an opportunity for us to be humbled and for us to be reinvigorated in the vigilance to stand against sin. Because what happened was they fell, asleep at, they fell asleep at the tower. That's what happened. 
right? It's not that you're stronger than them. It's that there was a failure of vigilance. But guess what? Ha- vigilance is one of the things that fails all the time. Vigilance is incredibly fragile because attention spans are fragile. Sin happens when our, spir- our spiritual attention span lapses, right? And we're all like spiritual gophers. I mean, like our attention span is like 30 seconds. And yet what we have to build to have real godliness is we have to build a, a unbroken attention span to the Spirit and an unbroken vigilance against the flesh. And that happens best when conceit and envy and provocation are broken by a humility that comes from knowing that we're just like the people we're trying to help and that all we're trying to do is to get them back in step with the Spirit through repentance and faith. The second one is taking weight from people who are weak, right? It says, carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So in case we were wondering exactly what it meant that um, faith had to work through love, right? All that matters is faith working itself through love. Chapter 5, verse 5, and 4 through 6. And then that, that is shown by, right, serving one another humbly— Right? That's still pretty vague, right? You could be like that guy in Luke who's like, well, who's my neighbor? You have to love your neighbor, but who's my neighbor, right? It's a terrible question, but we'll ask it because we're always looking for enough, enough vagueness to get off the hook, aren't we? So here he says, you want to know what, you want to know what love, loving your neighbor is? Humbly serving your neighbor? I'll get a little more concrete with you. Taking weight. That's all it means. Taking, taking some weight. You see your neighbor, your brother and sister. This is the focus here is in the church. You see your brother and sister— you see that they, they can't bear all their own weight, and you take some of it. That's love. Now, I want you to think about how humiliating that is for us. Think about how humiliating this. What is the sermon so far? Here's the sermon so far. I could have got my four-year-old Helene up here to do the sermon. Basically, this is what Paul has said so far. Forgive, <laughs> help. That's, that's basically what it's saying. Forgive and help people. Right? That's what's so cataclysmically offensive to our flesh. Because the truth is so concretely simple that Paul is just like, look, here's what it is. You take other people's weight. Are you taking other people's weight? You see, the minute you start thinking in those terms, you're like, are you a loving person? I'm a loving person. Whose weight do you bear? Who are you bearing weight for? That is, oof. That's a little too, when does church get out? You know what I mean? If I'm like, hey, are we loving people? Let's have a revival. Let's stay all afternoon. I mean, you wouldn't say that, but I'm like, who, whose weight are we bearing? Now that's meddling, right? That's not the kind of preaching I like. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying we are so self-deceived in how we see ourselves and how we are spiritually that we have to be confronted with this idea of, no, here's what love is. Love is bearing weight that other people can't bear. And the reason why that's necessary for spiritual freedom is because in our flesh, we want to protect ourselves, and we don't want to release those assets that other people need. The time, affection, attention, listening, money, right? Risk, hospitality. And secondly, those are the people that justify us. We actually need for them to stink. You see, because the way most people actually function in self-justification is— the, the way we most often justify ourselves is by creating a law from the picture of someone we think is our inferior. 
And because they are that thing, and we are not, we are better. And the best person to pick for that is a person that we consider weak who can't bear their own weight. Because nothing is so easily despised as somebody who can't bear their own weight, right? Somebody who can't manage their life. And with a certain number of ways of controlling our lives, most of us can control our lives. We can bear our weight. Usually by getting rid of a lot of the virtue we're supposed to bear, but we can bear our own weight. It's one of the reasons why what people really want to do with the poor is tell them off, right? Who wants to raise their hand if that's true of you? You don't have to play. That's how we really think. We think, my God, can you—how hard is it? Right? How hard is it? You—you can't find three people that won't steal from you that you can get an apartment with so you can pay rent? You can't do that? You can't find three people in the world. There's seven billion people in the world. Right? You can't—you can't hold down a nine-dollar-an-hour job. You really? You can't—you can't just drive the bread truck. You—like, this cannot be done. Right? You can't have a decent—you can't be chaste enough so you don't have a bunch of kids and no father. You can't do—that's not doable, right? Now, here's the thing. I'm sorry, did I—did I get down into the darkness a little too much there? It's even worse than that. Because those of us who are labeled successful look at those people, and we don't only have conceit about their failure, we envy them. Do you know what I would give for my life to be that simple? Do you know what I would give for that? There's people who own businesses in here. There's people who are teachers and are in charge of whole classes. There's people who, who are in charge of office and writing legislation and— Right? Do you, know, do you know what they would give in their own mind for their life to be that simple? Drive the bread truck. Don't have illegitimate children. Find two people I can trust. Be able to, with a little bit of consistency, ingratiate myself to a church family that would help me. Oh my gosh. I could be legless and armless and pull that off. But meanwhile, I'm running multiple million dollars of three organizations. I, my schedule is crazy. I'm raising four children, blah, blah, blah. And my kids go to the soup kitchen. You know what they tell me when they come, when they come home from the food pantry? Daddy, everybody there has a nicer phone than you. And everybody has a nicer person than mom. You see? Conceit, envy, and what would we like to do? We would like to tell them what to do, which they would receive as provocation. Because I don't want their childhood. I don't want the education they got in the school they went to. I don't want their car that breaks down every 30 minutes. I, I, I don't want any of that. Because we envy parts of people's lives, not their whole lives. And we're conceited about parts of how we're better than other people, not their whole lives. And we wish they would be as good as us in the parts of our lives that we do well. And that's why these next two verses do make sense, because it doesn't look like they do. Well, like when he says, and then you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And then he just goes into this. If anyone thinks that they are something when they're nothing, they deceive themselves. Each one should test his own actions so that they can take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one will carry his own load. You see, <clears throat> the minute you realize that the purpose of that verse, carry each other's burdens, is to humiliate the heck out of us, to show us how concretely unloving we are, 
how, and how in that lack of love, it's, it's much worse than that. We're not just positively not loving, but it's, it's so much worse. We're conceited and envying and provoking. That is, we're sowing and giving and loving the flesh. The self-justification of our conceit, the self-comforting of our envy, and then the lack of virtue and restraint in our provocations. And he says, the, the, your problem is, is that you're comparing yourself to somebody and making them into a law and justifying yourself. And if you want to boast, you need to compare yourself to you and what matters in the kingdom of Jesus. Right, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 13. The first three verses start out like this. Paul says, listen, if I— can literally, through the Spirit, speak in the languages of angels in heaven, if I can prophesy every mystery that has ever existed in the unforeseen realities of the spiritual world, if I can have faith so strong in my utter belief in God's miraculous power that I can move mountains, if I, in profound charity, give all that I have to the poor, literally every every penny of my material possession, and if I surrender my body to the flames, that is, I give myself to a burnt martyrdom. Okay, this is participatory. If I have not love, I am— Yes, yeah, the clinging symbol in the first verse, but ultimately says, I am nothing. Nothing. One of the interesting things about this verse, I have said for years— um, Galatians 6 says that we should bear each other's burdens and that everybody should bear their own load. And if everybody carries the weight that they can, most people can bear their own load and take some weight from others, and the few people that can't carry their burdens will be able to carry each other's, bur each other's burdens, and in love will be able to carry everybody. Now, spiritually speaking, that's true. It's theologically true. It's actually not true from these verses. Because in that last phrase, for each one will carry his own load, you notice that I've changed the translation to will, not should. And the reason I did that is because the Greek word is in the, the future indicative, not the present subjunctive. It's not in the—it's not in the sh you should. Subjunctive is you should do this. Indicative is you're going to do this. Right now, in the future indicative is you're going to do this in the future. That verb is in the future indicative. All the commentators say it. I'm not making this up. And so what it literally says is, for each one is going to carry their own load. Future tense. And what that means is this. You're going to carry your own load. The poor are going to carry their own load. The weak are going to carry their own load. The successful are going to carry their own load. Everybody is going to carry their own load. And here's what the load is. Faith working itself out in love. That's the load. Everybody's carrying that load. Nobody is going to have somebody else carry their load. The load that makes you something rather than nothing is love. And if you carry that load, you can compare yourself to yourself and be careful about boasting about anything in front of Christ because he did a heck of a lot better than you. But the only grounds of boasting is faith working itself out in love. And if you, regardless of whose burden you're carrying, regardless of how pitiful the poor person you're looking at or the person who screwed up their life is— Regardless of any of that, the question is, are you bearing the load of love? And the question for them is the exact same. Because everybody, no matter how disenfranchised you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter how dysfunctional you are, does not matter how, how little you think you have, everybody can bear the load of love relative to what you have in your hands. Remember, in Matthew 25, who is the servant that goes to hell? 
the one who has the most? It's not, is it? It's the one who has the least. Jesus told that parable that way on purpose. Having little doesn't excuse you from carrying your load. Your load is love. You can love. Everybody, everybody who experiences redemption, faith will work itself out in love. You will carry the load of love. But it doesn't have one pittance of relationship to how much money you have or what you're carrying of somebody else's. We all can carry something for somebody else who's hurting. And if all of us carried something that we could carry for someone else, it would make us a heck of a lot less selfish. And we would carry everything, and we would all be carrying our own load, the load of love. And we would all be carrying different loads for each other. And you see, if you understand it that way, that everybody's carrying the same load, that destroys conceit, they have to carry the exact same load as you, so it destroys envy, because you have nothing to envy. And then if that happens, that humility and loving of each other will take away provocation and create humble, self-serving, self-sacrificing love. You see? Then the last one he gives is sharing, being generous with those who invest in you spiritually, right? He says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. instructor. And the thing that's difficult about that is that <clears throat> is the relationship between the word and all good things. That's the thing that's so humiliating about it. That's the thing that's attacking you. That's the thing that's meant to free you from the self-deception of the flesh. You see, because what the flesh says is, that is not a fair trade. Come on, right? Who negotiated that deal, right? All Nick has to do is get up there and talk, right? People who, people who give you, who, who instruct you in the word, that's, that's talking, right? How is that worth all good things? Right? How, how, how is it, how does it make sense? That somebody tells you something, it costs them nothing. And then you're supposed to share all good things with whoever instructs you in the Word. How does that make sense? You're being mentored by somebody, yet there's a small group leader that really faithfully helps lead discussions and teach you the ministers that you, you benefit from, right? One of the reasons Paul could write this is because he didn't get to visit these churches very much. And so they couldn't construe this to be self-serving for him, right? One of, the, one of the people I think of when I think about this right now is there's a guy on our staff named Noah James. He's a visiting scholar. I don't know if you've met him yet. But he's—I mean, he, he, he taught the word in the land of the gods in India where there were no, where there were no churches, planted churches. He got beat up there for it. He trained for two decades, got a PhD, and is now training pastors all over the world. And now, now he's raising, trying to raise support. And— you know, he feels bad about having to ask for money. And like, I've always, like, when I raise money for other stuff, I feel bad about it, right? But that, listen to what this verse says. What that verse says is, if you know what you're getting, if you know, you didn't, you didn't get just talking. If somebody instructed you in the actual word of the gospel, you received everything. You received divine salvation. You received life. You received freedom from confusion and self-deception. You, you received a way out of the slavery of the law and the flesh. I mean, you, you got everything. There's, there's nothing left on the table. The stuff you would share back, you, you open your person, you, you, you throw the lipstick at the person, and it's, it's not, 
It's not, it's not anything, and it doesn't mean that what we do with our lives aren't important. I'm not saying that you should elevate ministers or elevate the work of the word above, way above everything else. But what the flesh will do is it will demote it below everything else. Because it's just talking, right? And you see, the, the idea here is not that this is the most important thing for you to do. The idea here is, is that if you are sowing to the flesh, if you aren't walking in the Spirit, if you are really saying that you're a Christian, but creating a fake religious law and indulging the flesh, when it comes to what you do, the, how you feel towards people who preach the Word to you as faithfully and humbly as they can, is you will not have the response of profound gratitude and generosity. You'll have that response. Your response will be, how little can I pay for this? When, if you believe the gospel and you believe the work of the Spirit, you'll, you'll believe you've received everything. And it will lead you to spontaneously want to share everything. <clears throat> now, there's three—hopefully hopefully you've already gotten some takeaways from this, but there's three takeaways that I think the last verses here put forward to us in a way that I think is helpful. The first is— <clears throat> When God can't be mocked, the flesh can't deceive us as well. It says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, this is a very broadly and very widely misinterpreted passage. On one level, this is a threat. It's not actually a threat. But the content is threatening, right? Look, God can't be mocked. The person reaps what they sow. Don't be deceived, right? But, but think about what else he's saying. He's saying, listen, one of the things that could liberate us in, in an incredibly radical way from our self-deception is the realization that God can't be mocked. You see, God, so many of us sort of naturally treat God as this sort of like, sort of country bubkin, kind of emotionally shallow, easily manipulated sort of creature, where we can like sort of pretend that we're a Christian, and we can say that we believe in Jesus. We can make up some fake law that we live up to, and we can indulge the flesh, and, and we can play both sides, and we can do whatever we want that we think will make us happy in the world, and we can say that we're a Christian, and that we have faith, and that faith, of course, gets us to heaven, and we can, we can play that whole thing, and that's going to work. It's like thinking you can play Monopoly with God and you can be the kid who's like, I'll be the banker and you're stealing 500s and like he doesn't know. You have never thought a thought in your life that God thought was complicated. That if you told him, he'd have to ask you to repeat it in different words so he could understand. In Romans, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond seeking out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Or who has ever instructed him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Right? You see, here's what happens. When you realize that God can't be mocked, you have to be honest with God. You have to be honest with God. And you know what happens the minute you're honest with God? The minute you're honest with God, there's somebody else you have to be honest with. You. There's no way around it. In fact, I would be willing to argue. It would take an hour, so I'm not going to do it now. 
that you actually cannot be honest with yourself until you begin to be honest with God. It requires the external being of God and an awareness of his, of the, your total inability to deceive him and to interact with that person before it really, it really will come home to roost in you that you cannot deceive yourself. And you'll begin to see all the ways you do deceive yourself and all the ways you talk rot towards God and all the ways you talk rot about yourself. And it will, it will, it will so change you. You'll, you'll pray. First of all, you'll pray instead of not praying. <laughs> Two, you'll pray totally differently. And you won't pray as long. You'll be a much more efficient prayer, too. Because you won't ramble on about stuff that you know God already knows, and you won't repeat yourself as though you're, you're saying some repetitive incantation. You will just sit there in silence, and then you'll just talk to the God who is there, who can't be mocked, who, but who loves you and has called you to come and speak to him. And it will just change a whole lot of things, and there's a whole kind of, lot of stuff that you might pray for now you won't pray for anymore. And you'll pray really different about a lot of things, and you'll act so different about a lot of things. Because the minute you realize God can't be mocked, you don't just have to be honest with him. You have to be honest with yourself. Now, let me, let me say one more thing about this to show you that and to make something clear. I want you to notice what this verse says. It does not say, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows sins will reap damnation. And whoever sows good deeds will reap eternal life. That's not what it says. What it says is, is that if we sow, that is plant our capacities, like who we are and what we have and our time and effort and all that stuff. If we plant that to the, what's the word? It's not sins. What's the word? Flesh. If we give ourselves incrementally in little tiny things like seeds and little pieces— to that place in us that is self-justifying and self-gratifying and seeking our indulgence and wanting more for ourselves and not dying to ourselves and not looking to Christ. And if we plant to that, that grows and that grows and that grows and that grows. And it's like a cancer. It takes over our very self. It diminishes the presence of the, the, the revelation in the, in the place of the image of God. And it, turn, it, it zombifies us. It destroys us, and it ultimately damns us. And if we sow to the good deeds, is that what it says? No. It says if we sow what? If you sow to do what? To please the Spirit. That is, every choice you make, every little thing in your life, where you plant it is not what the flesh wants. Where you plant that thing, that moment, that decision, that word, that sentence, that action towards that friend, roommate, or colleague. If you plant it, instead of where you plant it, towards what the Spirit is saying he wants. You plant it there, and you keep planting there. It grows, and you reap eternal life. Now, now notice this. The God who is there, who has revealed himself in the self-revelation of Jesus Christ, is the God, therefore, who cannot be mocked, can be perfectly morally serious, and whom you can't play a single game with, and who at the same time can offer salvation to all humanity completely on the basis of grace as an utter gift. Think about that. Let that, I mean, that ought to astound you. Like, how is that possible? Like, how did, how do you make a morally, I mean, a morally serious reality in which people reap what they sow and in which 
things matter and in which God can't be mocked and people can't play games and that spirituality is serious and morality is serious and life is serious and all these things matter. And at the same time, people who screw things up in sin can be saved by grace. And salvation can be totally a gift. So as that God didn't root salvation in sins, he rooted damnation and salvation in the choices of the heart, in how we plant the seeds, and how we're formed either in walking by the Spirit to apply faith through love, or whether we actually give ourselves to anti-faith, against hope, and in rejection of love, which produces damnation. And yet in both processes, but mainly in the process of damnation, at any point in time, one can stop, repent of however far they've gone, and believe, and begin to sow. Remember, you're like, but that person's going to be way behind. They're going to be all this way down the road of damnation. Yes, but they're not sowing. They're not sowing good deeds. That's not what they're planting in. They're planting in pleasing the Spirit. And there's nothing the Spirit can't grow. And there's nothing in which the Spirit can't grow. And there's no heart in which the Spirit, when, when somebody will believe and plant to the Spirit and seek to walk in love, there's no person, there's no past, there's no heart so hard, there's nothing in you that can inhibit the growth potential of the Spirit. And you see, when you, when you realize that, that God can do that, that he can put himself under humanity in all service like a slave and yet be utterly the God who cannot be mocked and do it all at the same time, it'll change you. You'll have to be honest with a God who can't be mocked. It'll make you honest with yourself. It'll change the way you understand faith, hope, and love. It'll make you long to really be free, and it'll drive you back to the six ways of walking in the Spirit that we talked about last week. The second is that the Spirit brings a spiritual harvest. These verses say, listen, what we have to not lose sight of is that if we sow to the Spirit, it will produce a spiritual harvest. And not just our eternal life, it will produce eternal life more broadly. That's for lots of other people. it'll, It'll produce blessing much more broadly than we thought of. It will produce a harvest at the proper time. Now, I don't know if you guard it, but garden plants do not grow linearly, okay? Gardening is one of the most frustrating activities known to mankind, right? Because when you plant, like I, I grow my, my plants from seeds. I do it because I'm a pastor, and I think it's good for me, okay? Because here's what happens. You plant the seeds, and it takes a couple weeks for some of them to just to sprout, right? And then they're like this tall for two months, They grow so slow, and they're like, from here to there to there to there to there. And then you put them in the ground, and they just sit there for like three weeks, right? Because you have to mess with their roots to get them in the ground. And so they're like, oh, my roots hurt. And meanwhile, there's other plants growing up around them super fast. And you're like, tomato plant, all these weeds grow, but you don't grow. And he's like, I don't want to grow, right? And then there's this point where they grow a little bit, but there's this point where the roots really get settled, and they get deep. And there's somewhere kind of a little bit later in June, and everything just goes whoop, and flowers and fruits, and you harvest. 
It's totally nonlinear. It's like this. It's not like this. You have to realize that or you'll give up. Don't you see? You won't have enough hope. You have to believe that spiritual harvests look depressing for a really long time. And I don't just mean in your non-Christian family or your coworker. I mean in us. I mean in you, your temper, and the words you use, and the way you talk to people, and how you feel, and the way we're doing things, and how, how we do or don't bear each other's loads to restore people who sin. And you'd be like, oh, how could I still be here? Just listen, keep planting to the Spirit. Keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Because it will produce a harvest. If you plant the, the seed of the gospel in the soil of the Holy Spirit, you are going to get something at the proper time. Because remember, God is the one who seeks to make you walk through the fear of losing everything that you've hoped for, for the good, so that when he gives you everything you could have ever hoped for, in fact, more than you could have imagined to hope for, you would have walked into it for the right reasons. So that he should make you both virtuous, faithful, hopeful, and happy. Instead of the alternative, forever seeking happiness and forever being miserable. There will be a spiritual harvest. Keep planting. The growth is not linear. And then third is, if you believe that, right? If you believe in that principle of sowing and reaping, if you believe it's on the basis of grace, what you're going to do is you're going to start flinging spiritual seeds everywhere. You'll be like, where can I plant? I'm in step with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, where do I put seeds? You just tell me because I'm going to put them everywhere. Because I know that every seed I plant, every seed of the gospel, I plant in the Spirit. That is, every time faith works itself out through love. Every moment, every time. No matter who it's with, what it looks like, whether people see it or other people don't see it, whether it's happening inside of me or outside of me, whether it's in a spiritual discipline, or whether it's self-sacrifice, whether it's in generosity, whether it's in discipline. Just, it doesn't matter. It, does, it never matters. All that matters is, am I planting a seed in the Spirit? Because I know if I plant a seed in the Spirit, it's going to grow a harvest at the proper time. So show me where to plant. And if you do that, you will start to see your kids' misbehavior as an opportunity. You'll see people cutting you off in traffic as an opportunity. You'll see your worker that doesn't show up for their shift as an opportunity. You'll see your boss who's screaming at you because they don't even know what happened, but they're mad at you. You'll see that as an opportunity. You'll see the wrong person being elected as an opportunity. Oh, you'll see the right person being elected. You'll see everything. Everything's an opportunity. Everything bad that happens is an opportunity. It's still bad. But you will look at it very differently because every place you plant a seed— if you're planting the seed of the gospel and you plant it in the soil of the pleasure of the Spirit, it is making you into the you that God created you to be. It is killing the Spirit. I'm sorry, it's killing the flesh in you, not the Spirit. <laughs> There's been a lot of people in my house for a week. That'll be my excuse. And it'll, ch it'll change things. It'll change things in a really profound way. And so, I hope that for the rest of your life, these two pages will feed your soul in a way that is incredible. 
I hope that just by understanding these two pages, you will take hold to a, of a spiritual freedom that you never thought possible. That you'll never again, for one minute, be susceptible to the demagoguery that spirituality or religion, that is doctrinal Christian faith, is in any way slavery or diminishing. It is the freedom of Christ from the two great slaveries of humanity. It doesn't make you less yourself. It makes you more yourself. It is the only means of killing the great infection of the flesh. It is the only way to find the motivation necessary to live out love in all its most self-sacrificial and humble forms. It is the only sufficient means to destroy conceit and envy and provocation in the human heart. And it is it is the masterful organization of a God who cannot be mocked, who gives a salvation freely that cannot be bought. And if you will believe, and if you will take hold of what he offers, and if you will walk in those six ways of the Spirit, and just walk with God and trust in Christ, you will find you will find a freedom that is actually too rare in the spirits of men and women. And you will find that love may be something that you will less and less have to force yourself to do and more and more be something that is part of you. So the band's going to come up and we're going to sing and um, for, for some of you, I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus. Um, the Bible says that, that right, today is the day of salvation. Right now, this minute. And I want to encourage you to believe, to trust in Jesus right now. There's, there's some people who, as I've been talking, you've realized that, like, that you are, like your whole Christian faith is a mockery of God, basically. The good news is that can stop right this second. Remember, the gospel is all of grace. It doesn't matter where you are, what you are. What, what. The minute you're—you have to be honest with God and you have to be honest with yourself. The minute you're willing to be honest with God, and it brings you to a point of repentance and trust, God does the rest. And you'll be like, well, God should be a lot more angry at me. God's not like you, thank God. God's love functions very different from ours. So repent and believe. All of, all the Christian life is repent, believe, walk in the Spirit. Repent, believe, walk in the Spirit. Repent, believe, walk in the Spirit. And receive the peace that comes not with control of your life. Receive the peace that comes from humility. That is quiet and like a breeze that refreshes in the middle of March and you will be happier than you imagined possible. Let's pray. Father, please help us to believe and to trust you. Please help us to be people who learn to walk in the Spirit. And please help us to believe right now. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Make us learners and instruct us in the Word so that when we apply the verse to share all good things with our instructor, the first instructor of the word that we would share our whole lives with would be, would be you. 
teach us and redeem us and save us and direct us. Now we pray in Christ's name. Amen.